slobs out there. You poor slobs out there in Radio Land. We here in the limelight are living life to the fullest, right? I'll tell you. I, I just want to, uh, before we do anything, I want to, I want to apologize for the scene of total debauchery that I am observing. I just hope there are no women and children listening tonight. What a disgusting scene. I've always had a basic ambition as a reporter, and as a, as a radio reporter particularly, to do a play-by-play, a play-by-play commentary of an orgy. Oh yeah, can you imagine a direct remote from Gomorrah? This is Walter Cronkite coming to you from Gomorrah tonight. What a... <laughs> Somehow Cronkite in an orgy, I don't know. Uh, you know, you know, I'll tell you, America has strange customs, though, that you got to admit, we're all Americans, we all understand it. And every week, I get a list of various celebrations that are going on in America. You wouldn't believe it. As a matter of fact, you know how every American tourist wants to go to the uh, fertility festival in this little Italian town. He'll travel 40,000 miles to attend the tromping of the grapes in Belgrade. And he says, gee, they have colorful ceremonies there. Why don't we take a look at some of the ones... You know what we're celebrating in America at exactly midnight tonight? You ready for it? We are celebrating America Honor Your Barber Week. <laughs> how do you like that? That, that? Only in America would they have such a week. See, and I don't know how you honor your barber. Oh, no, get your hair cut, honey. I get it cut all the time. You know, these literal minds. <laughs> you know, it's a funny thing. About <laughs> she got an ABC on her forehead. <laughs> You know, I'm thinking of I'm thinking of the barber, though. You know, I, I read this, and I said to myself, well, you know, I ought to ignore that, considering what barbers have done to me. <laughs> then I thought better, you know, I said, you know, I never have heard a, a show or anybody talk about the life in the barbershop. And, you know, you women, today we're in the, in the midst of a great, fantastic role reversal where chicks are all trying to do everything that men do. <laughs> that presents an interesting picture. <laughs> Some of them even tried that, you know. <laughs> Doesn't come easy, but... <laughs> oh, you're right there, aren't you tonight? Yeah. Explain that to her when you get back to Teenac, you know. <laughs> if you dare. <laughs> But no, the whole the whole point today, though, no, really, this this role reversal is really going now. For example, I, I saw a a page in one of the big lady type magazines a couple of weeks ago, and here it is, big full page, big spread, you know, full page ad, and here's this chick, and she's got leather pants on, and she's got these boots right up to her hips, you know, big right, oh, they're 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 cowboy boots, you know, big babies. And she's got this leather jacket that zips up sideways. She's holding a big bullwhip. And she's standing in front of her Harley Davidson mic, that fantastic motorcycle. It's 400 pounds, you know. And she's standing there with her hand on, its, on the saddle seat. She's looking right out of that picture at us. And she's made out of stainless steel. 
You know, she's got that sharp, bold model look. You know the kind of chick that stands like this? <laughs> that are always standing like this. They all look like radiator ornaments, see? <laughs> yeah, she looks like a human martini. Very, very dry, see? And if you look carefully, you'll see those little things there are olives. You know? And there she is. She's standing there, see? And underneath it, it says, Today's new ultra-feminine woman. I says, yeah, wow, you know? And I remember Esther Jane Alberry. <laughs> well, what are you booing about? What's the matter? I mean, everybody's got a past. Ran out loud. I remember Esther Jane Alberry, see? Esther Jane Alberry in her flowered print dress. And, and every time a motorcycle would go, go by, she'd sort of duck by. You know, she'd, she'd say, oh, those, look at those terrible people. And today, the Esther Jane Alberries of the world are lining up outside of the Yamaha agencies. They're lining up outside of the Honda agencies. And so, tonight, I thought I would give some advice. Women have never really been given any advice on what it is really like to be a man. Oh, yeah, women have got this fantasy world about men. You know, when they walk out of the house, going to the office, it's going to fun. <laughs> yeah, that's fun. That's considered fun out there, see? Little realizing that that poor son of a gun, ten minutes later, he's in that train, see, that's coming in from Westport. And all around them are guys who are ten years younger than he is and $10,000 a year richer. <laughs> You know, they're sitting there and they're looking at both catalogs, you know. And he's looking at a BMT schedule. <laughs> yeah, that's a fact. You know, it's a rotten feeling. See, and these guys, from the minute he hits that platform, he feels terrible. Because he's wearing one of those suits, you know, those summer suits of about two years ago. Those seersucker suits that look like pajamas. You know, for two years he's thought he'd look real sharp every morning. You know, he gets out and all of a sudden he, he feels fat. And he feels wrinkled. And he's surrounded by tall, thin guys. Those guys right out of the Parliament commercials. <laughs> Have you ever wondered where those Parliament people live? Or those L&M people? Or those, those people particularly that drink Valentine beer? Did you ever see a greater bunch of people at the beach? They're all running around, you know. You know wow, you know, they've got... And they come running out of the surf, you know. And they've got big cans of beer and yelling and blonde hair flying. And there's a rock and roll band playing for them, see. And then you picture it with your rotten, crummy little parties at Jones Beach. You know, you're sitting there in the sand, and there's old, there's old paper cups all around you. You kick the dirt a little bit, and up comes something you don't even want to mention. You cover it up again. You sit there, you know, and, 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 and no, but there's no music, and there's a big sign that says, No beer allowed. You know, and, and, and that's, that, that's, the, that's, the, that's the Valentine world. It's the world, it's the world of fantasy. And I think the women live in a world of fantasy when they relate it to the life of men. You know, speaking of fantasy, wouldn't you like to once see a real beer commercial? You know, the way beer is drunk in real life, there it goes, see that? Hey! 
That's the third time this week he's down drunk there making a hot dog. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, it's a serious thing, though. Real, I'd, I'd love to see a real... Here's, here's a shot. See, it opens up. I'd love to write this commercial scene. It opens up, and you hear not the sound of a rock and roll band playing, but you hear a faint hum. You don't know quite what it is at first, see. But as the camera dollies in, you notice you are, you are looking into a kitchen. And you hear that hum. And then you begin to realize it's the hum of 10,000 angry flies. <laughs> see, it, it's a real-life kitchen, see. And the camera dolly, and you see a big crack in the wall, you know. There's a big crack, and there's a rotten-looking calendar hanging there. And there's a naked chick. You know, and underneath it, it says Al Winsky's Esso Station. You know, it's real America as it's lived. And as it comes in, the camera dollies past this sink. And there's a great big pile of dishes. Real crummy rotten dishes. Some of them have been there last July 4th. Months ago, you know, and you see an old football laying and all the junk, you know. And the camera dollies past, and now it's on this refrigerator seat. And it's a real type of refrigerator that people really have. You know the kind with the handles kind of twisted? And the rubber that seals it is popped out that's hanging out, you know. And just as the camera picks it up, it starts up. It goes... <laughs> you know how the refrigerators go in these crummy little apartments. <laughs> and then, suddenly, the door slams open and in comes Charlie. He walks in, and he's wearing a blue work shirt, and it's the kind, you know, that's open. You can see his gut hanging out here. This is a real beer drinker. How do those guys stay so skinny and drink all that beer? In those battles, this is a real beer drinker. He comes bouncing in, you know. He's got his lunchbox. He slams it down. There he is in front of the refrigerator. He has been riding the BMT for four hours, dreaming of this refrigerator, see? He stands back, he grabs the handle, he rips it open, and a lettuce falls out. A lettuce that's brown on one side, see? This lettuce falls out, and all this stuff, and you see, you see this half-empty, this, this half-empty bottle of milk, and it's got green mold on the top. They haven't drunk milk in this house. <laughs> and, and you see this crowded mess in there, and, and right there in the front, there is a plate, see? And on this plate is, is a hamburger patty with one bite out of it. And it's got that thin line of white grease around it, see? And there's a plastic thing here full of, uh, you know, what's left of the peas and stuff. And he starts wading through this stuff, see? Like this. And you can hear his breath coming. <laughs> He looks around. There's a desperation on his face. You can see that gold tooth shining. He looks around. He says, Emma! Where's the damn beer? Where's the beer? And then you see Emma. She comes out through that bedroom door and she's got her hair up in curlers. She says, shut up, I drank it. <laughs> and then you cut you see, to a nice announcer, and he says, don't let this happen to you tonight. <laughs> well, that commercial will never be done, see, because that's reality. The reality of the men's world 
And the reality of the beer drinker's world is never told to the people on the outside. How about car ads? Have you ever seen a car that really looks like the way they look in the ads? Oh, really, they all kind of look a little bit like Ursula Andress. Oh yeah, those cars stand there looking at you. And, and you notice that, that nowhere has anybody written a four-letter word on them. In the dust, you know. That nowhere you can look through a thousand ads showing beautiful automobiles and no place do you see evidences of an Airedale by the left rear tire. <laughs> nowhere, see, but that's the way they're really seen. Well, okay, I'm thinking of reality, see, and this, this life of the woman and what she thinks men live like. And I remember, I'll tell you, there isn't a single man in this room who has not had a barbershop trauma. I mean, every guy remembers some fantastic, horrible thing that happened to him in a barbershop. And this is never told to women. If they're going to live like men, they're going to have to get the quality of apologia that men have. Oh, women are very tough with the people they deal with. Oh, yeah, yeah. if you ever talk to a sales girl, she'll tell you that she would much rather deal with men because, because women just say it. They say, what is this junk, you know? A man will come and he'll say, I'll take it. It's really a big difference, see? And so every man is totally beaten by his barber. You know, it's a terrible feeling. You sit in the barber chair, see? And this guy comes up behind you. And he's got a white coat. Automatically, that cows you. I've always been afraid of guys in white coats. Oh, yeah, in, in, in my hometown, there was an expression that kids used to holler at each other. Yeah, one day they're going to they're gonna send a guy with a white coat after you, boy. So guys in white coats somehow subconsciously always make me a little bit nervous. See? And he comes over and he always talks some totally unknown tongue. Barbers always speak with a heavy accent. I think they learn it at Barber's College. Yeah, they'll say, how, how do you want it? What, what, do you, what do you want me to do? And what do you say to him? That's the awful moment. You know, you say, well, cut it. <laughs> Nobody ever has the guts to do that, see? So they'll say, oh, a little off the top, a little off the <laughs> sides, a little in the back, and you say, all right. And he starts to work on you. And you see yourself in the mirror. There's this terrible feeling as you're getting colder and colder. You know that feeling? Yeah, you're getting colder and colder, and then you say, uh, not so much on the side. And then he grunts, as though this is another one of them slobs from the Midwest. He doesn't know a good haircut. And so ultimately you walk out and you smell funny. And you feel naked. And 20 minutes later you go to the office and somebody says, what? What happened, Charlie? <laughs> Somehow it changes your whole look like you've been in some kind of funny accident. Or something. It's t yeah, this happens constantly, and I'll never forget, if there are any barbers listening, I had an incident about two weeks ago in the barber shop, and, I, and immediately it all came back. I'm sitting there, you know. I'm in the middle chair. There are three chairs in the barber shop. And, and all men will, will, will agree with me on this. Always in the barbershop, on the other, usually to your right, 
there is a big guy who looks like he spends eight hours a day, seven days a week in the barbershop. He's a, he's a rich-looking man with a red face. And they're all clustered around him. There's a girl with things. They're moving, you know, they're, they're rubbing his elbows. And there's guys working on his shoes. And he's kind of fat, red-faced. And they're, they're rubbing things into his, into his skin. And they keep talking about the races. Or they mention the stock market. And you're sitting back there feeling exceedingly inadequate. How many of you always feel like you're intruding in the barbershop? <laughs> that there are certain people who belong here. And you're just sort of a guest today. They'll, you know, they're quickie around the back and out, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a terrible feeling. So I'm sitting there and here's the big shot. Everything is calm. And sitting over here in the chair to my left is another barber. And he's watching my barber. And he keeps going... I see him, you know, in the mirror. He keeps going like this. And I figure, what the hell have I got? Have I got a rookie here? Or is this guy experimenting with a new technique, you know? And, I, you know, I keep, and he keeps cutting away like this. And then all of a sudden the door opens. And that's when it happened. In came this lady. You know, there's a certain kind of lady who sends her kids to the little red schoolhouse, you know, who reads Spock. You know that kind of lady. And she wears brown burlap uh, skirts, you know. She always wears sandals. And she's wearing, she's wearing a Swedish blouse that she wove herself. You know that kind of lady. And, and she, you, you, you know she watercolors. You just know it, you know. And she just loves Huntley and Brinkley, see. And she comes in like this, and she's got her darling. This pampered little idiot. You know, this little kid, already he's got a carte blanche card. You know, and they come in, and he sits down at this, this next chair, see. And he sits, and the barber stands over him. He's waiting, see. And right here, the lady sits. And she's watching me get a haircut. Have you ever had the humiliation? That's, that's real humiliation. You can't say, get out of here, lady, you know. Yeah, she's sitting three feet away from me, and here I am, see, with this damn thing around my neck, you know, with this piece of paper, and she keeps looking at me. And the kid sitting next to me says to the barber, he says, in that little boy voice, he says, I'll have just a little bit off the sideburns, please. And he says, I want you to, I want you to singe the back. <laughs> singe the back. And he says, I want a feather cut around the back and up around the sides. I didn't even know what a feather cut was. And here's this guy, he's four years old, see. And the barber says, yes, sir. And here I'm surrounded by two guys who are in. A four-year-old kid and this guy. And all the way through this haircut, I see this kid, they're revolving him around, you know, in the chair. He's looking beautiful. And out they go. And they're still working on me. You know, they're still working on me, see? I said, what's the matter with me? And I turned to the guy in the back, I said, uh, how about a little, uh, 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 that, uh, that thing the kid had, the feather cut. He says, feather cut? 
And he said it with a tone of voice like you're not ready for it yet. <laughs> you know, I'm strictly the bold type. You know, I had that feeling, see? And I'm sitting there, and then in comes a real kid. Now, this is the moment of revelation. A real genuine kid comes in. You know, he comes in, he's got his blue jeans on, and he walks into the barbershop. And immediately, this guy here, who's the specialty, his specialty is kids, you see. Because he's got a fantastic left chop. <laughs> you can see him. He says, all right, get out here, kid. He grabs the kid by the back of the collar, you know. Up he goes, and he slams him in the chair. And he puts the thing around, and he starts with the clippers, you know. You see this cloud of hair. Then he goes, and the kids, his face is white, you know. And I'm looking in the mirror at him, and he's looking at me, see. Both of us are scared. For the same reasons. And I, I see that clipper going around, and my barber is watching this barber. I figure he's getting ideas, you know. Oh, it's a terrible scene. He's cutting this kid. And he, it's all over in about two and a half minutes. He gets through with this kid. He takes the thing off. He pours this sticky water on him. You know that Lucky Tiger stuff? It's green. I mean, for 20 minutes after you leave the barber shop, if you light a match near you, you'll blow up. Oh, you know, it's that kid. He just pours it all over the kid. He rubs it in his head, smooths it down. He says, that'll be a dollar. <laughs> He's got a dollar. It's all crumpled up. He gives it to him. He scurries up. And he turns right and he's gone like a shot. I'm sitting there. I says, oh my God. That kid. There go I. I know what's going to happen when that kid gets home. I'll never forget the most humiliating experience. I'll tell you this is, if you're a mother type out there, listen to this and remember it. This is the single most humiliating experience I ever had happen as a boy. I go to this barber shop, and I walk in, and here are about seven men all sitting there waiting for their haircut. You know, it's Saturday. They're all sitting there like this. Just sitting. A couple of guys are reading the paper. And there are three barbers working. And they're elderly gentlemen. They all look a little like the Gaul. They're the big, distinguished, gray-haired types, you know. And they've got that big barber pole that's swinging around out there. And here's the, the price list. Have you seen the price list, ladies, ever in a barber shop? It's fascinating reading. Yeah, there it is. It's all down there. See, they, 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 in big, big letters, it says, haircut, dollar and a half. Then it says, good haircut, two dollars. <laughs> It's the truth, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not kidding. It's true all the way down the line. See, so I walk into this place, and I have been going to another barber for, for like, ever since I'm a little kid. And we are now in another neighborhood for the first time. It's a new barber. My mother has given me the money, and she says, tell him you want a good haircut. Okay. I have walked two blocks, and now I'm in the barber shop. And I sit at the end, and immediately these barbers all look, you know, they all hate to work on kids. The three of them look, and you can see they're mentally flipping a quarter. Who's going to get this one? You know, and at the end, the big guy gets me. There's a crowd of men. I now mount this great throne. Hey, by the way, 
Here is another embarrassing moment in a barbershop which you chicks don't even know about. There's one guy in a barbershop that you know cuts your hair so that you look at least human. You, you get to learn that, see? And there are three barbers. One of the worst moments is to walk into the barbershop. Your barber is working. And these other two guys are sitting in their chair. <laughs> and you walk in, see? And they say, okay, yes, sir. And they take out the thing. You say, no, no, no. <laughs> and this barber over here, yours, has got four guys waiting. <laughs> Do you ever have that terrible feeling? Look at these two failures. I am contributing to them. Why don't I give them a break? Well, I'm this kid, see, and I'm sitting in the barber chair. This guy is over me, and he's got bad breath. But it's, it's not really bad breath. The breath is very sweet and acrid. It wasn't until two years later that I recognized it as old overholt. Yeah, he's breathing. I thought it was hair tonic, see? Yeah, he's breathing down on me, and he keeps leaning over like this, see? He's leaning real heavy on me, and, and you know, I, I, I didn't know what to do. I'm sitting there, see, and they put the board across. You remember when you used to sit on the, on the board? And that fantastic moment the first time you came in and they didn't put you on the board? That's one of life's little milestones, see? Yeah, and, and now I'm sitting on the board, see, and I'm sitting there like this. And he says, how do you want it? He's got me by the chin, see? He says, how do you want it? I says, I want a good haircut. He says, all right. And he grabs the, he grabs these, these clippers and he starts. And I hear it going all around the back, all around the side, up the back, up the front, down the front. Oh, he got my eyebrows. Yeah, he just goes, and he's sort of staggering. He says, all right, kid, you're done. He puts stuff. Out I go. Have you ever seen pictures of the Sioux Indians? I'm serious. I had a tuft. A strange little pointed tuft. And, you know, I didn't look in the mirror or anything like that. Incidentally, what do you do, man, when after this klutz has cut your hair and he holds the mirror up and says, oh, is that all right? What are you going to say? No, put it back. No, no, it's terrible. They always show you the mirror, you know. So I start to walk home, see, and I figure, well, it's, I'm home free. I got my hair cut, see. I go up the front steps. I got the change in my hand, you know. I walk in through the living room, in through the dining room. My mother's over the sink. She looks. She does this double take. She says, you go right back there. You go right back there and tell him you want a good haircut. <laughs> Can you imagine going back to the hair cuttery men? Can you imagine going back to the barber shop? I went back to the barber shop. I walked in. The guy is now working on another man. He says, what do you want? He says, you got the right change. He says, my mother said. <laughs> my mother said to bring my haircut back. <laughs> he says, sit down. He says, 
get up, sir, for a minute. Sit down. I sit down, and he takes the, and he cuts the point off. He says, as good as you're going to look. Oh, I walked home, and now I get in the house, and my mother says, she says, you look terrible. She says, what an awful haircut. I could have done better with a bowl. Somehow it was my fault. And ever since that time, I've had that vague sense of unease. Every time that guy grabs my head, he says, how do you want it? I have a vague sense, I ought to say, with a little point on top. <laughs> we'll be back in five minutes. Palisades has the rides, Palisades has the fun. Come on over. Shows and dancing are free, so the parking's so cheap. Come on over. Palisades from coast to coast, where a dime buys the most. Palisades amusement park swings all day and after dark. Ride the coaster, get cool in the waves, in the pool you'll have fun. So come on over. Swim in the world's largest outdoor saltwater pool at Palisades Amusement Park. Come on over. Tuesdays and Thursdays are bargain days. Many rides, five cents and ten cents. There's over 190 thrilling rides and attractions. Plenty of free parking. Free tomorrow afternoon. See the Blues Project, the Middle Class, Evie Sands, and many others, all in person at Palisades Amusement Park. This is WORAM and FM, your RKO general station in New York. Stay tuned now for the news with Ed Pettit. Time at the tone, 11 o'clock. Good evening, everyone. Here is the late hour news. Ed Pettit reporting. A C-119 has gone down west of Jacksonville, Florida. It's not known how many people were aboard or whether any were killed, but there's one report that there were 40 men on the plane. The C-119 reportedly was en route to Cecil Field, a naval air station at Jacksonville. Chicago's racially torn west side is quiet, with 2,500 guardsmen on hand to make sure it stays that way. The area was rocked with violence for four succeeding nights when police professed their inability to check the mobs. The guardsmen were called out. Richard Speck is sought tonight for the murder of those eight student nurses in Chicago. Reports of his whereabouts have cropped up all the way from Illinois to Texas, where he's known to have relatives. Speck looks like the man. He fits the description given police by a lone survivor, and his fingerprints have been found in the apartment where the girls were killed. Speck's brother Howard says the news of the hunt for Richard has left him and his wife nervous wrecks, but he says he'll turn Richard in if he shows in Monmouth, Illinois. The object of the police hunt is 25. He has a record, is known as a seaman, a kind of jack of all trades, and he's liberally adorned with tattoos. So far, no trace of a little seven-year-old girl, Ruth Ann Miller, who fell into a deep and abandoned copper mine near Calumet, Michigan today. Rescuers have been down as far as 300 feet where they were blocked by a fallen timber. The search goes on, but there's virtually no hope. The child's stepfather told newsmen grimly tonight, the shaft goes straight down, maybe for several thousand feet. North Vietnam's President Ho Chi Minh told the world tonight that he's not ready for peace and is ordering the partial mobilization of reserve officers and rear guard forces. The Red Leader said his people will fight on in spite of American bombings. 
No mention of any trial of those captured American airmen. U.S. officials had warned North Vietnam earlier of the probable dire consequences of any such trials. In the war itself, American Marines and Vietnamese government forces are engaged with enemy units just below the North Vietnam border, and Viet Cong terrorists have been active again with a bomb attack in Hue, another at a bus station in Cam Ki, north of Saigon. In that attack, four civilians were killed, 15 others wounded. A third attack later reported in the Chinese sector of Saigon itself, a grenade attack that wounded seven civilians. Firemen hope to bring under control later tonight a series of brush fires that hit parts of Staten Island today. And non-medical employees, except those at Montefiore Hospital, were back on the job today. But a spokesman for local 1199 Drug and Hospital Employees Union says wildcat walkouts and demonstrations will resume and spread unless the workers get an immediate pay hike. John English the man who's directing Eugene Dickerson's bid for the Democratic gubernatorial nomination warned tonight against giving too much credence to rumors that Senator Kennedy will back Dickerson. There had been rumors to that effect. We'll take a look at sports and the weather in just a moment. She's dangerous. He's diabolical. They're delightful. They're Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole together for the first time, giving the screen a lesson in love and larceny in William Wyler's How to Steal a Million. It all happens in Paris in Panavision and Color. How to Steal a Million from 20th Century Fox. It looks like the World's Fair crowds are back in New York, or so it seems, at the Radio City Music Hall, where William Wyler's How to Steal a Million, starring Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole, is now entertaining thousands. All the critics are acclaiming the wonderful fun. It's delightful and cheers all around for everybody, says Bosley Crowther of the Times. Four stars, of course, from Wanda Hale of the Daily News, who says hilarious. It has one of the funniest sequences in film comedy history. Q Magazine raves perfect entertainment, beautiful to watch and enjoy. William Wyler's How to Steal a Million, starring Audrey Hepburn and Peter O'Toole, now at Radio City Music Hall, plus one of the most spectacular stage shows in theater history. Number one, Lord Gordon won tonight's feature at Roosevelt Raceway. Daily double winners, number three, Storm Morocco. Number two, Jane Adios. The $90,000 Rockingham Special Sweepstakes wound up in a dead heat today with jolly set and sense of rhythm. Weather outlook for New York City and vicinity, fair and pleasant through Monday. Daytime highs in the 80s, nighttime lows in the 60s. Present reading here in Manhattan, 69, humidity 63%. The THI a comfortable 66. That's the late hour news at Pettit reporting. Have a nice weekend. Now back to Gene Shepard. You notice he says it's surrounded by four guys, all of them armed to the teeth. Yeah, well, listen, son, I've been through hell, so I know what I'm talking about. 
You know, speaking of hell. <laughs> you want to hear about it, friends? I'm interested to see that we have a religious crowd here tonight. Fascinated by the theological undercurrent here. As a matter of fact, if I put it to a vote, all right, how many of you are for good? Well, how many of you are for evil? Ladies and gentlemen, I want to apologize for the unseemly display that you are listening to tonight. I want to hear one guy call the limelight and say, Shepherd, I'm also for good. I'm with you. Wait for that phone to ring. What do you mean, Oral Roberts? Who said he's for good? Oh, don't confuse preachers with good, honey. Oh, no. You know, speaking of hell, I'll never forget, you know, it's, it's summertime. We've all, there's a certain thing that happens in summer. Boy, I'll tell you, it's, it, it, do you have that feeling? It's now mid-July. And you have that feeling that already you've loused up another summer. <laughs> you know, already I've wasted another one and you walk around on this hot and you're sweating. And you've, how many of you, for about two months before summer comes, you can hardly wait, see? Yeah, I mean, you're walking around, oh boy, it's going to be great, and you got your goloshes on and the snow's coming down. You know, and you're freezing, you keep thinking of summertime, oh boy, wow. And then they start showing the summer clothes about March, you know? Yeah, they show the summer clothes, you see, you see them in the windows, and you walk past, and you say, oh wow, look at those. Boy, I'm going to get one of them Nodros jackets. Yeah, boy, this summer I'm going to... And then you see yourself, see, with this fantastic bathing suit. And you see yourself right out of those pages of Esquire. You know, sort of casually leaning on the, on the cabin of a 38-foot Richardson. A cabin cruiser, you know. You see yourself like this. Or you're hanging onto a lanyard. You know that thing that you always see in the commercials? Or you see yourself maybe, oh, you see yourself in, in Thunderbird country. You know, Thunderbird, or, or you, you sometimes, or do you see yourself sometimes when you go, you ever thought what's going to happen when you decide to go to retire, to live in that never-never land, what they call the golden years? Are you going to live them in Marlboro country? <laughs> or is it going to be the Thunderbird world? Or is it going to be where they photograph the springtime cigarette commercials? Where the water always comes down from out somewhere in a beautiful waterfall? Well, one time, how many of you are familiar with, with the soft drink ads? How can you be not? Well, one time, I had a taste of hell that came right out of one of those drinks. You know, for people that want to pause to refresh and think young. You know, the whole scene, see? And I've got this beautiful date. I've got this little convertible car, which was my absolute... It was, it, was, it was more important to me than anything in my life. I had worked on this thing day after day. This little Ford convertible. I used to get out there and simonize it. 
How many of you have ever have ever really simonized a car? Boy, I'll tell you, you're looking at men. I mean, you get wrists like that. I mean, you get fingers that got muscles that bulge. And, ooh, ooh, ooh. and then you finally think you got it right, you know, and you stand back and you see those circles. <laughs> you know, somebody said, gee, that's an interesting effect you've got. <laughs> they call that machine tooling, isn't it? Something like that. You said, no, you know. And so I, I, had, I had Simonized my car for about a week. This thing looked like, I'll tell you, and it was a used car, of course. In fact, this car had had about 17 previous owners. Have you ever Simonized a car that's had 17 owners? And a car that's had 42 coats of paint, the last four put on with a big house brush? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I paid forty dollars for this car, and it was my life. It was, it was, it was my life. See, and it was beautiful. It was dark midnight blue, and I'm going out for a date. It is Saturday afternoon, just like today. It's summertime, and next to me in the car is Dorothy. Now I had two girls. You know, all men. Really, they see life in two different ways. All men have got one girl that represents beauty, that represents the kind of divine woman. How many of you, uh, how many men, when I say woman, you picture this woman you've never seen before, this eternal chick that you're pursuing? Yeah, it's the chick that Hugh Hefner is going to find one day. <laughs> If he hasn't already found nine of them, you know. No, I'm serious. That, that, that's the eternal woman, see. Well, we, we all have two or three girls, one of whom represents that. And then there's the other girl who represents a girl. <laughs> now, you know what I mean. She's kind of fat. And, and, and she makes potato salad. And uh, she's open to suggestions. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's a very human type chick, you know. That was Esther Jane Alberry, see. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that was the human girl that I lived with. And this one over here, this was Dorothy. Dorothy was made out of pure alabaster. She was carved out of, out of ivory, you know. And she looked like the kind of girls... Have you ever seen those crummy little lamps that you buy out here on 42nd Street? You know those places that have always got a big sign that says, Going Out of Business? There's one guy been going out of business for 42 years. And I asked him. I, I went in two weeks ago and I says, Well, when are you going out of business? He says, What do you mean? I says, Well, you got a sign that says, Going Out of Business. He says, Well, one day I'll quit. You know, theoretically. And then there's always that big sign that says, Price War. And underneath it, it says, Jewelry Riot. You know, some nights in the hot weather, you can hear the police going down to the jewelry riot. You know, busting it up, all these ladies with costume jewelry, you know. Yeah, there's one downtown now that's got one that says, Scotch Riot. I kind of like the idea of a Scotch Riot. They mean Scotch whiskey riot. And so I go into this place, you know, 
And there's a lamp I see the other day. You know those terrible lamps with the little with the little ruffles all the way around, pink shades. And underneath it is there are two little figures dancing the minuet. And they're out of 18th century England or France. The, the, the beautiful China girl. Well, that was Dorothy. Dorothy. What a beautiful chick. And she was so beautiful, you know, I couldn't even get near her. She'd sit over here, and I'd sit over here. And she had this, this soft yellow dress that blew in the wind. And we are driving out in the summertime in my Simonized car. You know that great feeling, see? And I can hear the tappets going. And once in a while she would say, she would say, what's that noise? And I'd say, that's power. <laughs> and the tappets are going, and you could hear the valve springs going sideways and up and down, you know. And I, listen, I had a piston slap. You could hear my piston slap for over four miles. It sounded like some giant basketball game, you know. You could hear ka-dum, ka-dum, ka-dum. And those pistons are going, but I loved it, see. And there was another thing about that car. When you really get involved with cars, a real car is a car you got to drive. Most of today's cars are totally automatic. Well, my car, from the time I got it, used to wear out kingpins. It wore out kingpins and main steering bushings at the rate of two a minute. So you see, it was always shimmying. And every time I would hit a streetcar track, I'm the the front end would go all over. See, so I'm trying to play it cool with Dorothy next to me, and I developed these fantastic shoulder muscles. I'm sitting like this, see, and every time the car, I'd turn it, see, I'd, I'd make a, a right-hand turn, and it would go, and she'd say, that's very exciting. <laughs> I'd say, well, it's a powerful car, see, and we're driving out in this beautiful summer day, little realizing I am about to taste the very edges of hell. We're driving. The sun is beating down. And I'm looking at the gas gauge. Well, I had this gas gauge that varied between empty and one-eighth full. <laughs> you know, it wasn't until I was well past my 25th birthday that I actually saw a full tank. <laughs> with the meter all the way over, you know. I was always used to saying, uh, I'd drive in, and so that the chick wouldn't hear me, I would get out of the car. And the, and the gas station guy would come around the back so that she wouldn't hear me, you know. I'd say, a quarter's worth. <laughs> you know, a quarter's There's a great feeling to drive and say, fill it up. Well, I never did that, see. And so I drive into this station. I needed a little gas. I'm playing it big, see. I drive into the station. It's hot. It's a beautiful hot day. It's one of those golden days out of youth. And the sun is hanging up over here. And you could see the cars going on the way to the beach. And we were heading to the beach. Underneath my, you know, I was trying to save money. See, I had about 70 cents for the date. So under my slacks, I had my bathing suit. So when she went to the bathhouse, I would say, well, I'll go get dressed. And I would crawl under the Ford, see. Take my pants off. How many of you ever undressed in the back of a car 
with the shades pulled down. And then somebody opens the door up. You know, there you are. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm driving, see, and, and, and it's beautiful night, see. Beautiful day. Here's a shell station. So I drive into the shell station, and out steps a kid about my age. You know, he's got a ducktail thing in the back. And I was going through that period in, in, in kiddom when I would fix my hair for about an hour every day. You know that thing you have about seven pounds of greasy kid stuff, you know? After all, why shouldn't a kid use greasy kid stuff? You're only a kid once. And I had this stuff, you know, and I had my hair all fixed up and the duck's tail in the back. And I had gotten this new sports shirt at J.C. Penney. It was one of those cellophane ones, you know? You know, I, I was really proud of it. It was two-tone. I remember it was purple down the front and it had yellow sleeves. And it had these plastic pearl buttons. And it had gold stitching around the collars. You know, that was very hip. And I had these white pants. Oh, I was ready. And I had a sport coat that was my summer sport coat. It was red, white, and blue. Beautiful, you know. And so we drive in. I'm dressed absolutely to the top. I step out. I walk over to the guy. He's, he's already got the gas tack off. And I had a gas cap, by the way, that was siphon proof. Can you imagine a guy who never has more than a pint of gas in his car with a siphon proof top? <laughs> Nobody's going to steal my gas. He says, give me the key. I says, oh, the key. I left it home. He says, well, how much gas do you want? I says, well, uh, a quarter's worth. He says, well, we can put it in the carburetor. <laughs> now, if you don't understand cars... <laughs> so so I, says, oh, I says, okay, so we open the hood, you know, we pour the gas in. And so standing over there next to the, next to the filling station was this great big soft drink machine. And next to it was a big case of ice. You know the kind that you lift up and you look in there and all those bottles are floating. Gee, it looks great, you know. And that ice and that cool air, and it's really hot. See, the temperature's about 90 degrees. So I'm gonna play it big. I got 70 cents. So I walk over to the car and I say, uh, hey, Dorothy, uh, <laughs> would you like a drink? You know, and she says, yes. I said, okay, what do you want? And she says, uh, I will have a lime ricky. It's a lime ricky. I never heard of a lime ricky, you know. Where I come from, you either drank Yoo-Hoo. I mean, you drank stuff like, you know, really basic stuff like orange pop you got, you know. Or you got purple pop. Lime ricky. See, so I said to the guy, you got a lime ricky? And he says, yes. So I open this thing up. There it is. It's all floating. It's beautiful. It's cold. And you know that, that sense of summertime and excitement, the cold drink? And so I take the bottle of Lime Ricky and I drip it in. Oh, boy. You know, I open it up. I reach down and I take a bottle of my favorite beverage. <laughs> and I pop it open, see. So now I walk back in my new sport coat. And it's hot. And there's my new, you know, my beautiful Simonized job. And I say, here's your lime, Ricky. 
And I'm standing there, and the guy's putting the gas in. He's cleaning the windshield. I take a slug of my drink. Playing it real cool, you know. A big Cadillac drives in. I'm on top of it. I got a convertible. Take another slug of this stuff. And I don't know what made me do it. Never in my life have I ever done this before. I take the bottle, take another little slug, and I hold it up to the sun. I am looking at it through the sun, and all of a sudden, I see in that bottle of this famous beverage, this is the beverage for people who want to be refreshed and think young, do all these great things, and sing on a beach, and be forever tall and skinny, and blonde, and play tennis. I took, I look, I couldn't believe it. I look around. There was at least two and a half inches of floating. They're swirling around in there. Floating dead flies. I had drunk half of this drink. And they're all floating around in there, see. Up and down, I see the bobbing. I'm staggering. Oh, boy, there's nothing that will take the sophisticated man out of you quicker than that. You know, I, I take this thing, I, I take a look at it. And Dorothy looks at me and she says, What's the matter? <laughs> nothing. And she has finished her drink. She says, Well, finish your drink. I said, Well, uh, I take another little sip. No, I can't do that. She says, well, finish your drink and let's go. I said, ah, oh, what the heck? <laughs> we'll get one when we get out to the beach. And I go back into the gas station. And here's this kid sitting here, see. He's already taken care. That's all right. Here's this kid sitting here, see. I walk in. He looks at me. And I said, look at this Coke, Jack. And he looks at me, and he says, oh, you got it. <laughs> I says, you mean? He says, yeah, Charlie always does that. It's good for a lot. I says, do I get my dime back? Oh, he says, yeah, sure. He says, here, he gives me the dime. I go back, and I sit in the car. And we are now driving towards the beach. And she keeps looking at me. And she says, what's the matter? I said, oh, nothing. <laughs> and I keep thinking of this half a drink down there. <laughs> I wonder how many Anopheles mosquitoes I've absorbed. And we drove about 25, maybe 25 or 30 blocks with the sun shining on my hood. When all of a sudden it hit me, I says, just a minute, Dorothy. Go, 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 go. We go over to the side of the road. I'm trying to get out. <laughs> I just got one foot out. When all of a sudden it all came up. Stuff came up that I had had for last Thanksgiving. <laughs> all over my Simonized job. My white pants.
And Dorothy looked at me and she says, have you been drinking? In her world, the only people who ever did that were guys that drank. And from that minute on, I, 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 we drove to the beach. And I had that touch, you know, that, that vague premonition. The things are not always as they should be. Of course, these are the things that build you. Like the time, you know, somebody here says, tell the story of the great golden goldfish. It wasn't a goldfish, honey. It was a dogfish. Did you say dogfish? Dogfish. Have you ever seen a dogfish? Well, let me tell you something about that. How many of you, when you were kids, got hung up on something? Like model airplanes. And for about... For about a year, that's all you could think about. Or cars. Or girls. How many of you have ever gotten over that? <laughs> oh, yeah, you never do. You know, that's, that's a terrible... You know, speaking of hang-ups, before we go any further, friends, what radio station is this? And what fantastic, unbelievable, spectacular town do we live in, friends? Yes, New York. What a fantastic town. New York is a summer fist fight. You are cordially invited to George I'll and Martha's for an evening of fun and games. I know what we do. How about a little round of get the guests? Most proper child message. I don't like these games. Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, for a new motion picture, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? You can sit around with a gin running out of your mouth. You can humiliate me. You can... Tear me to pieces all night. That's perfectly okay. That's all right. You can stand it. I cannot stand it. You can stand it. You married me for it. That's a desperately sick lie. Don't you? Elizabeth know. Taylor, yes. Richard Burton. The motion picture, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? Also starring George Siegel and Sandy Dennis. Remember, no one under 18 will be admitted to the theater unless accompanied by his parents. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? From Warner Brothers. You can get it, baby. Be careful, Martha. I'll rip you to pieces. You are not man enough. You haven't the guts. Oh, wow. Edward Albee's Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? At the Criterion and Lowe's Tower East Theaters. 3,000 feet and he's gone, but he at least saw a fantastic blonde on the way down, you know? And so I'm over there on 6th Avenue the other day. This is true. I, I'll tell you, this is so true of our life because I think one of the things that all of us are going to have to face eventually, and that is there's two sides to the way we see the world, really. One side is this mythical side. You know, the mythical side that says, well, when I go to this Broadway show... I'm going to see a great piece of theater because Walter Kerr said it's great. And by the middle of the second act, your behind is asleep. And, and you know, you see, the big, you see the big poster out in the front, it says, laughs, laughs, laugh. You know, and it's spelled with F's, you know, laugh, 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 John Chapman. Or it says, best damn musical I ever saw, Walter Kirk. A smasheroo saccharino, Richard Watts. And now you're sitting, see? And you're behind already, your leg is asleep. You know, and you, and you, you know that terrible feeling when you can't keep your eyes open, you keep popping? And up there on the stage, this loud lady is screaming. 
And she sang, I love you, I love you. And she is that lovely songbird of the stage that everybody is madly in love with. And you, you know, you can't figure it out. And nobody's laughing. And 20 minutes later, after they get out of the theater and they get back in Scarsdale, they'll tell all their... The square forever. You know, I think one day there's going to be a television show that's a half hour. They just mention towns. Everybody. Hammond, Indiana. Dry Gulch, Mississippi. <laughs> oh, man. I'll tell you, I'm walking. You, you see this fantastic dichotomy. It's that dichotomy between what you really feel and what you think you feel. And so what happens 20 minutes later after this audience, and, and next year there's always a, a large guy who works in the garment district. You know, he's a rich guy, and he's going... <laughs> he's seeing Dolly. <laughs> you know, he heard, the, he, he heard the LP, and he's seeing Hello, Dolly. See, And he's going... Argh. And he keeps leaning on you, see. And next to him is his wife, Marcia. And she keeps saying, sit up, sit up. And then you wake up all the time. And the two of you together in the whole row with all these people leaning forward. You know. And up on the stage, the chorus boys are going back and forth, you know. They're floating in the air. And you hear a few titters of the ladies up in the balcony, the real believers, you see. And then 20 minutes later, everybody's back in Scarsdale, and they're all telling everybody what a fantastic time they had. You just got to see it, Charlie. Well, what is, why? How many times have you been told, you read in the movies, you read the, you read the review, it says, a moving experience, a fantastic evocation of a young man's growth to maturity. Black comedy at its best. And you go there, you know, and for the first five minutes, you know, it opens up with a big shot of the Brooklyn Bridge, which is the only thing that comes alive in the whole movie. The bridge itself. And for 20 minutes, you see this thing going on, and it absolutely, you sit there, and you, then you know what you begin to figure? That you are failing. You figure that you're not quite sensitive enough to appreciate the French New Wave. Or underground movies, you are so insensitive, you just think they're dirty stag pictures. You know? I don't mind the dirty stag picture. But when they tell me it's an underground movie, you know, that's quite true. I'll never forget they flushed out the American Legion once. When I was a kid at 2 o'clock in the morning, these guys were ahead of their time. They're watching underground movies, you know? You know, like up in Gertie's joint, you know? They're sitting there. Well, it's, it's that kind of strange involvement. You see, back and forth, where is the reality? Well, the other day I'm on 6th Avenue. And I'm walking along over that wooden street. I'm knee-deep in cigar butts. You know, you walk along, see, and, and oh boy, and the, and the crud is coming down. They're building buildings all around you, and it's drifting. And under the street, you can hear what sounds like an enormous caterpillar 
It's got stomach trouble or something. You know, it's going, the street is booming like that. And the cabs are sneaking past you and they're belching exhaust out on you. And it's hot. It's 102 degrees. It's fantastic, you know. And I'm walking along and past me goes a guy. He's just sweating like mad. And he's got hanging on him a transistor radio. You know, with the antenna sticking out in back. And he keeps raking people's glasses off, you know. <laughs> These guys are totally impervious. They walk right into an elevator, turn around, you know. All the people talking. And he's got this radio, you know, and there's there, there are special radio stations for these cretins. These are the stations that just go. They give their station break every 10 seconds. And, and it just goes right on and on. So you can't understand hardly a word. It just goes. He's walking. With that, and he's got it turned full up, you know. He's got 17 9 volt batteries pouring it out. It's one of these cheap little transistor radios, and it's squawking and yelling, and there's little old ladies all around, and people are inching their way forward. You know, you have a feeling like you're building the pyramids. All of you, you see. We're all trying to inch our way up towards 57. We can see 57th Street now. It's only been two hours since we left 53rd. And every, every 20 minutes a bus goes by, and on the bus, and the, the, all the windows are open, the guys are hanging out. It's 102 degrees, you know, and, and have you ever stood anywhere within 15 feet of a bus, those big grills on the back? It just... And all that diesel fumes, the little old ladies are on the guy with a radio up ahead. Then all of a sudden, past us goes this truck. It's one of these big yellow ones. And it's got big brushes hanging on the side of it. You've seen those trucks, see? And we're strolling our way forward, little old lady. I can, once in a while, I feel myself stepping on a body, you know. You know, it's summertime. It's New York. There's a lot of tourists that drop by the wayside. You know, a guy from Ohio who wasn't prepared. He didn't bring his aqua lung or anything, you know. And here he is laying, and you see his poor little brownie camera all crushed. This fantastic two weeks in New York, you know, and you're walking on him. I'm, I'm struggling through the scene, and when all of a sudden, the moment of insight happened. Past goes this yellow truck, see, and sitting way up on the cab, you know, they have these big cabs. He's sitting way high. That little green glass thing is this this guy with a cigar, see, and he's playing the controls. He's got big brushes. He drives this thing, rah, 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 rah. and it goes past, and the buses get out of the way. And he waits until he gets a good covey of us. Well, as an old New Yorker, you see, I could see him coming already. You know, it's just like a gazelle seeing a lion coming, you know. Some gazelles live longer than others, you know. And I'm an old GI anyway, you know. Whenever anything big starts rolling towards me, I hit the ground, you know. Oh, yeah, I learned a long time ago. It looks like a tank, you know, big M5 Tiger coming, you know. I'm standing. I said, oh, my God. They're starting, they're starting another, it's another advance. You know, I want to holler, gas, gas. You know, old GIs never die. They just get hoarse. You know, I want to holler, hey, send out the weapons platoon quick. They're coming. And this thing is going, rah, rah, rah. I see this guy up there, see. 
He's been doing this for 10 years. He's a real citizen of New York. You know, a real public servant. And he sees this crowd of people, all of them in their wash and wear suits, struggling. I see him reach for the lever, you know. I know what is about to occur. I dive into this storefront, you know, in I go, and I'm in a lady's hat shop. I hit the ground just as he grabs this thing and it goes, and this great stream of yellow liquid squirts out. They're washing the wooden street. And all of the little old ladies, you know, their girdles are wet and they're jumping and screaming. This guy says, I gotta clean up the joint, lady. It's too bad. And the cigar butts are swirling and the cigar, you know, the cans of beer and junk. And, and one old bum, it was sad, he's washed out of a doorway. He comes floating out like a log, you know. All right. He's been there since the Depression, see? And now he says, is Hoover still in? He comes swooping out. Well, I'll tell you, it was a fan. This, this is a true moment, you know, and I see all this crud, and I'm in the hat shop, and the hats are falling. And there's another guy in there with me, too, see? Hanging on to the counter, and this lady says, you two are XGIs, aren't you? She says... She says, they fall in here regularly. <laughs> you know, I'm down there trying to dig a hole. <laughs> and I look, I look out of the side, see? I look out of the window, and here's this guy going past, and he's got a great big sign on the back of this monster. It says, New York is a summer festival. <laughs> you know, and I said to myself, I'll bet he believes it. And I'll bet though, that poor guy who's lying down there with his little crushed brownie, he's going to tell him what a good time he had when he gets back to Chillicothe. And he's going to believe New York is a summer festival. And so, there's that great dichotomy. On the one hand, we, have you ever noticed, do you believe that there's any city anywhere in the country that has a better looking mayor than ours? <laughs> I'll put Mayor Lindsay up against Miss America anytime. What a handsome man. It's hard to follow what he says. But beauty is as beauty does, I always say. Yeah. Oh, sure, you know. There goes a Lindsay man now. Hey, did you see that weird scene the other day talking about that? Out of Everything's getting political. I, I, one, of the, one of the great insights, you know, one of, one of my friends is in politics, and he says, you know, he says, I remember the days when you used to work down on the wards. You know, when you'd go around, you'd shake hands with guys. He says, you get them, get their kid a little job working down at the post office or something. You get a few, you know, you, it's, it's, that's politics. He says, I can't figure it out. I says, what? He says, well, Chef, the other day I go to a Met game. And he says, there's 40,000 people out there. And a mayor standing in a box seat. He's standing there. And by the way, a typical New Yorker always says when you're sitting, you're standing. He said, mayor's standing in a box seat. I said, you mean he was standing on a seat? No, he's standing in a box seat. I said, oh, I see. 
You know, quick, I, I've learned the native language. I quickly translate. I says, what happened? He says, well, a guy comes on a PA system, and he says, Mayor Lindsay is now going to throw in the first ball. You remember when he did that at the mayor's game? He's going to throw in the first ball. So the mayor gets up there, and somebody hollers, you throw like a girl! <laughs> you know, Lindsay throws sort of like that, see? <laughs> well, that's Yale. It'll do it to you every time. That's not quite Purdue, gang. And so Lindsay throws the ball like that, and somebody hollers, Yeah, chicken claws! He never heard that expression. Lindsay, six feet four, he was picked for every team he ever run for. Yeah, you know what you know what chicken claws is, man? That's that terrible moment when two kids are choosing up in the neighborhood. Al and Mike. Two tough little son of a guns. And the final one goes, chicken claws! <laughs> That's what chicken claws mean. That means he's the first to choose. And then he looks around at the game. There you are. You're trying to look big. He walks right past you. He says, Chuck. And 15 minutes later, there's only three of you left. You and two little guys with thick glasses. And the next thing you know, you're out in right field. This never happened to Lindsay. You know? And he's throwing the first ball. And all of a sudden, an entire crowd jumps up back a home plate. Did you hear that? They holler, we want Buckley! Now, <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Are you sure what Buckley you're applauding? They were talking about Charlie Buckley. You can always tell Buckley people, they got those thick glasses. I'll tell you, you know, and, and all of a sudden the whole Met game became very political. You know, and, 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 and I wonder, are the Mets a Democratic ball club or are they Republican? Which are they? Or do you have a sense that, that the Yankees, independent, my fourth, Oh, that's the golden dream. <laughs> no, I think one of the things one of the things that has changed in baseball is that sense. And you know, somebody here tonight says, "Tell the story." Speaking of senses changing, of the golden, that fantastic dogfish. Well, all right, I'll tell that story if you're up to it. Are you ready for Are you ready for scariness? I'm serious. I mean, the. the now, now, wait a minute. You better know what you're cheering because, you know, there's nothing that is more... I'm never frightened, seriously, at monsters in movies. I have never seen a monster that frightened me. In fact, I've never seen a, a, a horror film that really did it to me. But you know what really does scare me? And I think scares almost every one of us. That is things like deep green water. I mean, think about this for a minute. Have you ever have you ever dived down into a lake out of a boat and all of a sudden you're you're down in there and you look down and there's nothing but green water as far as you can see. Well that's that's the kind of thing that frightens people. And I'm a kid, see. And I'm living I'm living in northern Indiana in the steel mill district. And and in the steel mill district, by the way. There is no such thing as hunting elk. 
They do not go hunting partridge in Indiana. <laughs> well, they hunt other things, but <laughs> but that's universal, see. Oh yeah, all the everybody takes everybody's got the hunting instinct, and and you know on on a quiet on a quiet Saturday night in South Chicago or in Hammond, Indiana, you can hear the males out hunting. You hear them out. You hear their cars going by. And you can hear those hunting cries. They're yelling at chicks. And the girls are walking on the street. And in Indiana, that's called scragging. You ever hear that expression? To go scragging means you get four other guys, you drive around, and you, you just look for chicks walking around the street. Now, you don't ever stop for them. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, it's like hunting with a camera. Because nobody quite knows what he would do if one got in the car. You know, if you ever got really close to one. And so you ride around and you holler, Hey, baby! Hey, wow! Hey, Flick! Look at that! Wow! Woo! Hey, baby! Wow! And these chicks walk by. He said, hurry up, Flick! Get around the corner! Quick! Go around the block! We turn around the block and then we sneak up on them. They're walking. <laughs> Flick has got it already in seconds, see, for a quick getaway. Say, all right, let's go. Hey, baby, wow, hey, you want to go with us? Wow. They walk on. Flick says, oh, boy, wow. What a great night for chicks. <laughs> oh, yeah, the summer brings them out, see, and that's the kind of hunting we did. Well, I'm about 10 years old. You got it? And, and you could hear this, this going on out there, see, and, and once in a while, hunting would take the form of shooting mice in the basement yeah my, my father was great with mice he'd get them with a broom you know and that kind of stuff and he'd hang their tails off every year you know he, he even tried to get one mounded once <laughs> biggest mouse he ever got you know well that's, that, that's the kind of scene it was and I'm a kid see and my, my uncle now at ease here my uncle gave me one of the greatest gifts I ever got in my life he gave me a one-year subscription to Field and Stream. Well, you know, have you ever read that magazine? I mean, seriously. I'll never forget the time my dad brought home a, a copy of Yachting. Can you imagine how a, a magazine like Yachting goes over in the Inland Steel Company? I mean, it just has no relative relevance to, to our world at all, see? And so every month, I'm getting this magazine, and I can remember sitting there reading it. And here's a story. It says, I discovered this untouched bass lake. It says, yes, as my Indian guide and myself plunged through the trackless wilderness, a feeling of excitement built up within me. I could feel my heavy pack weighing down on my shoulder blades. We had come 7,000 miles for this moment. A storied bass lake. We plunged through the undergrowth, and there it was, laying like a veritable jewel before us. The sun slanting down. The paddle of a canoe had never cut this water. Quickly, I opened my pack. I took out a silver doctor, that magnificently tied fly that this little Scotsman in Edinburgh ties for me at the cost of $700 each. I quickly attached it to my leader. 
Little did I realize that before I could even cast, these great fish were leaping out of the water. Ten minutes later, pursued by a 75-pound bass, I... I'm reading this thing, see? Oh, my God. And you know, oh, this is fantastic. And we had this little river that was about a half a mile from our house. And this river was an industrial river. Have you ever seen these little rivers that run over here in Jersey? Those little brown things that just lay there? You ever seen them, you know? And you have a vague feeling if you ever threw a match in one of them, it would blow up. You seen those rivers? Well, we had a river called the Griselli River. It was named after the Griselli Chemical Company. Because they made it. So I'm telling you the truth. This river, it was, it was, well, it was a peculiar color. Have you ever seen a sheep get sick? I'm serious. It was a peculiar color and a, and a bubble. The river would just bubble. And, and once in, oh, maybe every two weeks, Flick and Bruner and myself would go down to this river and go fishing. And we'd sit there on the shore and up to our knees in this mud. And we would catch tiny bullheads that would, actually, they committed suicide. <laughs> you know, they'd been laying there waiting for a hook to come for years. You know? <laughs> and, and, and it was so exciting that we were catching something, see? And I'm reading this magazine every month about muscalunge. And then the time came. And it always comes to you. My old man said one year, it was the first year we ever did it. He said, we are going to go to Michigan for a two-week vacation. Well, do you know what Michigan means to somebody who lives in a steel mill town? Who sees nothing but blast furnace? And you know, we had a beach. We were right on Lake Michigan. We had a beach that was right next to the Lever Brothers plant. <laughs> Listen, have you ever seen people swim in a solid sea of blue cheer? <laughs> I'm serious. The guys would be floating in this, in this detergent, for, and, and that's called going to the beach. And so that was our outdoor life. Well, Michigan was honestly, it was, like fabled, it was like a fabled world. It was like if somebody said to you, how would you like to take two weeks in Shangri-La? You know, I'm going to Michigan. And so that night, I get all my little fishing tackle together that I had bought. And I had worked for years to try to buy this rod. I got a rod, now it's my own. I've got plugs that I've made. I had bought little flies. You know, you, you used to be able to buy flies, believe it or not, in Woolworth. They used to have a little fishing department. And flies were a nickel. And so I've got this little cheese box full of this stuff with a rubber band around it. And my rod. Boy, I can hardly wait. And so we get into the car the next day. And we drive. We drive for hour after hour until the steel mills began to disappear. And now Michigan starts. More steel mills. <laughs> you know, it never occurred to me in Michigan they got, you know, factories, you know. It just seemed to me that Michigan was a place where they had... Have you, did any of you know what Michigan has on its license plate? What? That's right, the land of lakes. What does Minnesota have on its license plate? The land of 10,000 lakes. Minnesota and Michigan are always fighting.
Oh, how many of you know what the, what the Hawaii has on its license plate? I saw one the other day on 6th Avenue, believe it or not. Come on, don't you know? This is real trivia. At, no, it says the Aloha State. Have any of you got any suggestions what New York should have on its license plate? <laughs> well, wait till we get true freedom of speech. <laughs> and the first state comes out with its real slogan, you know. Well, anyway, we get up in the Michigan Sea, and I can hardly wait to go fishing. I'll tell you, I was so excited, it was just unbelievable. We arrived that night at the summer cottage. I'd never been in the summer cottage all my life. And, and I was not used to a place that had screens all around it. And you could see the beams inside. It was a real summer cottage, you know, and they had a little table. And they had this well. We used to go out and get water from a spring. And at first, my mother says, we should have brought some water from home. You should have seen the water we had at home. I can remember turning on that faucet and there'd be this brown stream come out. And once in a while, a little frog would fly out. An apple core, you know, that world. And so, oh yeah, people who live in, in, in city life always suspect that the country is poisoned. They really do. And so we're sitting in the cottage. This is our first night outside of the city. My father, all of his life, all of his life had lived on the south side of Chicago. Had never been out. And he's getting nervous. You could hear the sound of frogs. He had never heard a frog before. He says, what, what is that? My mother says, that must be the turnpike. <laughs> and you can hear the frogs and the bugs, the mosquitoes. And the old man says, what do you say, Jeannie? We go out fishing. And it's getting twilight. Beautiful night. Magnificent evening. And so we get into the rowboat, and neither one of us knew how to row. I mean, this is really the truth. And so, you know, we're pushing around. The old man, he sees somebody else rowing past. He says, oh, you're taking both at the same time, huh? Okay, and he starts pulling. You know, we start going. And we started to move. Well, I was the fisherman in the family. Remember that. The old man looked at me as the expert. And, and uh, how many of you, when you were a kid, you had one thing that your father used to say about you? He used to say, uh, Sherman fixes radios. Because once Sherman hit one in the bedroom and it started again, you know. And Sherman would bring little, little light bulbs home and hide them under the bed. And so the myth grew that he was an electronic expert. Well, I was the fisherman. And so I said to my dad, I said, Dad, I said, see over there, over there by the lily pads. Every time I see the Field and Stream magazine, they're always catching fish by the lily pads. You know, with the big pads. I said, that's where the big bass are, Dad. And he says, okay, let's go over there. So he rose, and we're slowly creeping over there. It's quiet. You don't hear a sound. A big bird flies over. Great big heron. Have you ever had a big blue heron fly over you? He just flies past. He looks down. He looks back again. <laughs> it is very sad when a heron does a double take. You suspect he sees something, you know. 
And so we're floating up to this lily pad, and I've got this plug I have built. It's really my prize. I have made it out of plans from field and stream. And I have been practicing casting for nine months out on the backyard. So I know how to cast. And so the, my old man says, all right, he says, I'll roll, you cast. So I start casting. First time in my life, I'm casting. Out by the lily pads. It lands, plop. I read it in. Plop. It's getting darker. It's getting darker. I'm casting. And all of a sudden, it was so dark, I couldn't even see the plug. I threw it out, and there is this gigantic splash. It just went, pow! And the old man says, you're hooked on a log. I says, Dad, there's something on it. And you heard something splash and go out of the water. My rod bends double. I'm so excited. I'm fantastic. Dad, I got a fish. I got a fish, Dad. I'm, all over the lake, they could hear it. I got a fish, Dad. Whoa! And the rod is... I can't tell you how he fought. It was just like out of the stories. That fish fought for 10, 15 minutes. It's getting black. My old man is sobbing down at the end of the boat. He never seen nothing like this, you know. And I'm fighting this fish. He says, grab it. What is it? What is it? And I could see it now right at the edge of the boat. Have you ever seen a fish that you've caught right at the end of the boat and he's swimming underwater? You see that long black shape? I says, Dad, it's a big bass. He says, well, grab it. Bloom! Up he goes and into the boat. He's laying on the floor and he's banging the bottom of the boat. The old man gets the flashlight. He shines it. I will never forget that sight. On the bottom of the boat is the most frightening thing I've ever seen. He must have weighed seven pounds. He had a mouth full of teeth that were at least two inches along. Oh, fantastic kid. He's just laying like this. Big red eyes. And he's got this beautiful golden coat. My old man says, What is it? And it just goes, <laughs> We caught it. He says, It's an alligator. I says, no, it's a snake. And way off in the distance, one of the natives hollers, it's a golden dogfish. Get rid of it before it kills you. <laughs> we'll be back next week at the same time.